Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig. Good morning, good morning. Yeah, but uh, what is the theme today, Robert? Well, there's there's a, a, a little bit of information for everyone who's associated with the hospitality business called the Freeman Report, yeah. which, which just okay. came out and which we just got a copy and we just interviewed the principal author of it. So that's kind of pretty exciting. Well, then, it's actually then, called AF and Co. Then, then we're going to France. Oh. Well, we're going, we're going to a version of France where someone is deciphering rustic French cooking. Right. And then, and then just to complete our excursion to France, an expert on the goat cheeses of France to finish off today's program. Right. So that, that's what's up. What's what's up? Then our first character is yeah, our favorite guy, Andrew Freeman, who uh, does this every year. He, he spends I don't know how much um, a staffing on everybody digging up all these hospitality industry trends, and he does webinars on it. And uh, then he sends out summaries on it. And the amazing, and the amazing, amazing thing about it is it's. I mean, you can buy his consulting services, but the report itself is free. Oh yeah. I mean, you can go to his website and you can see all of the thinking of his org- of his organizations, which has people in restaurants all over the country. And I think you ought to sign up for his newsletter Absolutely. at AF and Co. because he's hysterical. He's <laughs> it's okay. very anyway. very witty and fun. Anyway, so here so here's Andrew. Uh, to say that I live every year for Andrew Freeman's trend report might be a bit extreme and <laughs> something of an exaggeration, but I sure love talking to you, Andrew. Well, thank you. I love talking to you, too. Yeah, the, correct, the full name of it, actually, is the Hospitality Trend Report. So you pretty much cover the whole industry. We do. We cover uh, restaurants, food, hotels, design marketing, um, everything, you know, it's a very comprehensive report for the hospitality industry at large. Well, your theme this year is um, we're not in Kansas anymore. Could you ask us, could you explain that to our listeners? Uh Uh-huh. Well, you know, everybody loves the Wizard of Oz, um, and I think there is a whole sense of uh, when Dorothy makes the realization that she's not in Kansas anymore, life changes. And we feel that this, you know, everything that's going on in the world right now, from the political environment to climate change to labor shortages to, you know, I'm going to say it, potential recession. Yeah. Um, you know, uh-huh. the reality is sort of hitting. And you know, when we were going over the themes for the report, we just said, you know, like uh, one of our one of our trend guys said, well, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore. And we were all like, oh, my God, that's the name of the trend report. That's it. <laughs> um, and, um, and so, you know, we're not seeing it as a doom and gloom thing. We're seeing it as more, you know, uh, a way to be creatively challenged and to, you know, learn how to navigate this very unfamiliar landscape that we're dealing with right now. Um, and, you know, it is a bit of a, a you know, a year that I think we're going to have to be very nimble and kind of, uh, watch every day what's happening and sort of just adjust as we go. It's, so that's where the title came from. It's a, sort of a very good year to retain Andrew Freeman and company as your <laughs> PR agency, right? Thank you. 
thank you so much. Uh, yeah, you, you, know, you couldn't, uh, you couldn't you know, possibly have said that, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, here's what I will say. I think a lot of times um, industry people, you know, they're obviously they look to make cuts in these challenged times. And one thing they have to remember is, like, you just don't want to cut, you know, your marketing budget because um, you really need to continue to drive revenue because revenue and butts and seats, as, I, you know, as you know, that's our tagline, butts and seats, you know, that's still going to be the number one source of, you know, keeping you alive and thriving. And when you start to manage down everything um, and you forget about, you know, telling people that you're out there, um, you know, it's, it's sort of a sign of, you know, you, you could really be putting yourself in jeopardy. Right. Well, you know, some of these trends are just sort of um, in a mature state because we've seen them coming for a long time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, like this vegan. Vegan goes viral. Well, it certainly has, hasn't it? Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, you know, every year, um, you know, every year there's something. And I think gluten-free is a really good example of how it started as a trend and now it's just cultural. Yeah. Um, I would say farm to table is the same thing. Like if anybody's yeah. using farm to table anymore, right. you're you're dating yourself. Right. And um, and now with vegan or what we're calling plant based um, diet, it's not just for uh, vegans. That's the thing. It's for everyone. Yeah. Health. Uh, yeah. And I think that this year and in the coming years, this will just again um, be cultural. It won't even be oh we have a vegan option or we have a plant-based option, you'll have sections of the menu dedicated to it, or these items will just be infused throughout the menu. So we saw it a lot this year, and uh, we, we believe it's only going to get stronger. I think so, too. And I can yeah. tell from the, the, the variety of cookbooks that I get in, you know, what they're, what's selling, because that's what they do cookbooks about. So, um, yeah. yeah, now, uh, this one is kind of a surprise that the cuisine of the year, you say, is Laotian. Yes. And, yeah, um, we don't... Yeah, but tell me, because I have some publicists after us to go to this new Lao restaurant. Uh-huh. Uh, and, yeah, and um, they want to contrast it with Thai, because it was previously a Thai restaurant. So, uh-huh. so what they're doing is they're doing uh, menus tasting between the Lao and the Thai. So, I mean, yeah. by the time you turn your, your whole your whole restaurant group inside out for Lao, uh-huh. I think it's uh-huh. probably a trend. Yeah, well, you know, it's an interesting thing. I think every year, like last year, we had Georgian cuisine from the country of Georgia, and that definitely proved to be very right on in terms of, you know, the Eastern uh, European influences on a lot of uh, food and restaurants now. Um, in looking at it, you know, in looking at food types, I mean, you know, there, because America is such a cross-cultural um, dining, you know, world, I mean, we, were t- we talk a lot about that this year, too, like, what is American food now? It's Basically, it's cross-cultural, mm-hmm. but um, when we were looking at, um, uh, you know, and we usually look to Asia to see what's going on over there, and then we saw that there was this... Um, you know, there was enough Laotian or Lao, you know, restaurants popping up, you know, across the country, which is, you know, basically there's a notable overlap with Thai. So I think because they're, you know, they're they're on the borders, you could throw sure. in, you know, um, you know, the, you know, all those all those countries are smaller and they sort of border each other. But I would say that um, we just saw enough of it to call it out, and you know, there's this uh, the Lao food movement, and then. You know, some of the examples 
restaurant by Bon Appetit, it was enough for us to say, you know, there's something on, you know, there's something here, and um, and it should be interesting to see what happens with this one. Was there a place? Was there a place where it started? I mean, like, some, did it start in San Francisco or did it start in L.A. or did it you start know, in we, New York? It's interesting. I think I would say definitely, um, you know, certainly starts on on this coast because we're the closest. But in looking at the examples, um, you know, uh, yeah, actually, the Lao food movement started here in San Francisco, and then we also have um, we have a very popular Thai restaurant called Osha Thai. And they just opened their first concept called Lao Table, mm-hmm. which is an expression of, um, you know, where the chef grew up, where she grew up there. So, you know, um, this trend sort of overlaps with the trend of chefs really bringing their heritage forward. Right. Um, and um, which I think, you know, is, is, a, is a wonderful. Well, Char- Charlie Fan uh, brought, brought Vietnamese into San Francisco mm-hmm. single-handed, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you think about what that was, you know, probably now 25 years ago. And, you know, um, but, you know, I think with this kind of uh, trend, La- La- Laotian is still a little bit unfamiliar to people because they just probably just think of it as Thai. Right. Uh, and so there's an opportunity, to, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, I'll, I'll say, you know, our, our friends, the millennials, um, have given us all the opportunity to want to learn more and discover more about different places, and um, and I think this is uh, this is going to be one that you know that people are going to want to discover. Now, you um, we we were just recently at the Food on the Edge um, symposium in, in Galway, Ireland, and uh, everybody was talking about mindful eating. Oh yes, a big deal, huh? Oh yeah. Well, that's. You know, the basis of our report this year was, you know, obviously the sense of, you know, you have to be really, um, keep your eyes wide open. And, you know, one of the original concepts for the trend report was don't think out of the box, just break the box, shatter the box. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, that there's no sense of, like, out of the box thinking now is just sort of the norm. And I would say that that was one. And then the other, you know, Central trend was wellness and mindfulness and taking care of the earth and taking care of your guests and taking care right. of your employees um, and, and, and taking care of the farmers. So, yeah, there's definitely a big awareness um, being driven a lot by climate change and by waste reduction and uh, the James Beard Good Food for Good concept. Right. So, you know, so it's just been, um, you know, and it's a great thing because eyes are being open to you have to take care of people and you have to take care of the earth right it, w- it was interesting that, that you you have this take care of take care of the people kind of thing threading through a, num- a number of sections of your report it was it yeah. was it was big at the food and food on the edge conference which which we just got back from and and, and an, another thing that they emphasized because a lot of the people who go there are chefs, is the need for chefs to take care of themselves. Yeah, well, that's an... Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is a big... Which is issue. a big, big, big thing, because typically chefs don't. Yeah, and, you know, that's... And, you know, and you, you, know, you run into over, you know, uh, obesity, drug use, um, you know, exhaustion. And, you know, let's say when the leader is dealing with any of those, uh, those you know, those issues, it definitely, you know, permeates down to the staff. And, and eventually from the staff to the guests. And, um, you know, my, my, um, one of my mentors and, you know, um, happy to call client, 
Cameron Mitchell oh, yeah. says, you know, you know, you put people first, and then the prophets will come. And um, and you know, watching his culture, you know, he is definitely he and his whole team are, you know, they walk that talk. You know what I mean? Right. They close on they close on Super Bowl Sunday so that their their teams can like, their teams can enjoy the Super Bowl. You know, I mean, yeah. They, you know, and I think that there's, I think everybody just has to start looking at that because number one. They also need to retain employees because they're just harder to come by, you know. Oh, so, it's so hard. Um, Everybody's yeah, running yeah. short. I know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all across the country, it's not just. And in fact, yeah. it's, it's happening in overseas as did, well. Did, didn't you? Didn't you like Cameron Mitchell's gin? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, I love what you know. Every, you know, I think he's. You know, he's. I, I have the honor to work with them, but I also think he's. You know, truly become one of my mentors, even though I'm older than him. Oh, yeah. Oh, there you go. Well. <laughs> yeah, well, he's expanding. He, he's, he's, a, he's a young he's a young whippersnapper. Yeah, yes, he is. Yeah. yeah. But we 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 did an interview we did an interview with the with the people who made what what became uh, Cameron's exclusively available gin, and I can't remember the name of it now. It was I like wa- it. Watering hole or something. Yeah, <laughs> I, I loved it. it. I liked it a lot. Yeah. I had some I had some of it last night before dinner. Oh, good. <laughs> now, I mean, you do this all the time, but, like, how about surprises? Is there anything that really shocked you this year? You know, you know, I would say this. I, I think what we were just talking about was really a little bit surprising because our industry has never really been known for taking care of its people. Right. Um, yeah, there have been some people that we, you know, that, you know, that we've taken care of, but I think in general, like, you know, the restaurant industry is sort of like, you, you know, certainly from the days that I was training as a chef and a cook, like, you know, you just got yelled at for eight hours. You worked <laughs> overtime. Nobody ever questioned it. You didn't, nobody cared. You know, it was just, and now, you know, culturally we've caught up a little bit um, to everybody else. You know, the other one that we sort of debated just to sort of have a little fun is porridge being one of our um, food trends. Right. Um, I was really on the fence about it, but then we saw again. Again, my team is so amazing because they saw enough of it, and they saw enough in, um, in you know, cross culturally again that I was like, God, they're really onto something here. But you know, I think there's some fun things like you know the fact that the chicken sandwich, you know, possibly could you know um, give the burger a run for its money. Um, you know, which you know, you know the burger's sort of been untouchable, but I think. Um, you know, the popularity of chicken sandwiches across the whole country has just been it's, huge. Yeah, I don't even yeah. understand it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I would say also that um, the other thing that I think was a little bit surprising is there's such a, um, like, uh, interesting trend in the fact that you're talking vegan, but then you're also talking Wagyu and sausage. And, you know, so it seems like every trend, had a counterbalance. Yeah, that's, you know, the, you know um, this, every time there's bacon everywhere, that's number one. Yeah. So, you know, I think it just comes down to, again, um, you know, restaurants and hotels are having to satisfy a lot of different taste palates and, you know, uh, health needs and everything. Or people just want to eat, you know, they want to eat plant-based one night and they want a steak the next and they want a low-alcohol spirit and then they want to, you know, a high-alcohol content. So, you know, it's just um, this whole sense of give me what I want when I want it yeah. has really, it's been, you know, That's I, a, couple, yeah, a couple of years ago I was very, ugh, this, this is crazy. But now I feel like um, the sense of this, um, I want to know what's going on, I want the 
experience. I want to have what I want when I want it. Um, that all um, has really, again, inspired us to get more creative. I think probably the most surprising but not um, unexpected was the impact delivery is having on full-service restaurants. Well, you mentioned that, and I mean, I'm, I'm amazed at how many people really I – mean, I don't even think it saves you all that much effort, to tell you the truth. I mean, yeah. Because, I mean, the, I'm talking about the delivery thing that gives you – packages where you have to put it all together you know oh yeah no this is that that was actually that didn't make the report this year because i feel like that was a trend a few years ago right uh but now it's you know i want food from my favorite restaurants when i want it on my couch watching netflix the the amazing thing uh andrew is to see the the amount of being delivered groceries coming out of my neighborhood whole food store well, famous. Okay. I mean, it, I mean, it's just absolutely amazing, and I want to, I want to see. I don't want to touch exactly, but I want to, I want to see what I'm going to cook and what I'm going to put yeah. in my mouth. Which, which leads me to the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is plant-based meat, meat, mm-hmm. non, non-meat meat. And I, and yeah. I should, I should, I should preface that by saying that we had our first experience of which meat was a lovely. I think it was. In- the Impossible Burger. We got the Impossible Burger through the through the mail in a in a in a big refrigerated box. Yeah, uh-huh. it was frozen solid. And and, yeah. and I cooked it side by side with regu- regular Whole Foods ninety percent ground beef. Uh huh. How did it taste? I thought it actually tasted. It tasted actually, better than the it, beef. It, yeah, it <laughs> <laughs> but it had all this stuff in it. You know, you want all this clean food. They say, yeah. and then. Yeah. What all do they put in there? You know, all the yeah, chemicals right. and all that stuff. That's another yeah. well, dichotomy. You know, I mean, obviously, the plant-based um, meat, uh, which is, you know, they're going to, I think that's going to be challenged this year because, like, you know, the meat producers are saying, it's not meat, so why are you calling it meat? Uh-huh. Well, they're, they're, uh, yeah, they're challenging that. But yeah. Uh, same but, thing with know, milk. You know, I mean, all the dairy farmers are really struggling, as well as yeah, the cattle oh, yeah. breeders. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, oat so milk is now becoming a category, right? Absolutely, oat milk, almond milk. You know, you know, um, and you know, all my young millennials drink all that. You know, they're um, somebody I heard somebody yesterday order an oat milk hot chocolate. <laughs> um, you know, so um, but I would say the plant based um, imita- imitators, or you know, are going to continue. Uh, we're seeing, you know, seafood. Uh, being mim- mimicked, if you will. Um, we're seeing, you know, I think a lot of, you know, well, there's a great new restaurant in San Francisco called Wild Seed. Oh, yeah, yeah, whole, yeah, you listed yeah, the them. Whole, yeah, the whole menu is uh, plant-based. And, you know, they're basically, you know, taking classic dishes and doing them without the quote-unquote classic ingredients. And it's really tasty. Um, you know, I, I will say this. There's a little piece of me of just like everything else. I think it'll settle in, uh-huh. and uh, and but you know if you think about uh, Burger King introduced the Impossible Burger, McDonald's has Beyond Beef. Yeah, I mean there's just um, so again this is this this vegan or uh, plant based trend again where we're, I to your point and we're at the tipping point right now mm-hmm. and it's going to just become you know cultural. Yeah, but you know I mean you're going to end up with these contra- contradictory trends like. Um, okay, you have your vegan fake meat or whatever it's called, and then you have all these people um, 
growing meat um, muscles and animal muscles in a petri dish, and how yeah. how's that going to end up with the non-GMO things? You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> yeah, no, it's very interesting. And then you know we had a trend all about aquaculture, which is you know um, you know preserving the sea and 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 also uti- utilizing lesser known smaller fish like sardines and yeah. anchovies and canned uh, seafood. A lot of this is being done, you know, I believe, honestly, because, you know, sustainable farming practices. And But, you know, we also have to preserve the ocean and we have to, there's just so much, you know, I mean, we're at the, we're at the point in our world where, like, we, we have to leave the world in a decent place for, you know, the people that are going to follow us. So that... Tell uh, that to our president. So, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, oh, yeah, I know that. Oh, my gosh, I don't want to talk about that. Because mm-hmm. I truly believe that a lot, well, I am going to talk about it, but I truly believe a lot of, our trend report about this, you're not in Kansas anymore in this unfamiliar landscape that we're talking about has just been driven by this sense of um, that, you know, everybody's feeling. I was having a conversation about this last night, and people were saying to me, like, oh, you know, the younger generations are not feeling the way, you know, the boomers are and uh, the Gen Xers, like, because we're more, you know, we're more attuned to no different. But I do believe it's impacting everybody. It's just, it's non-stop, you know. Um, yeah. Now, um, I think we ought to give you a, a, a little space here um, uh, to, to just say something nice about your business <laughs> called oh, AF and Co. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I would definitely recommend that everybody go to our website, which is www.afandco.com. Uh, you can get the full trend report there. Um, we, you know, we only touched on, you know, just a minor thing. We have a whole beverage section. So I think you'll enjoy, uh, reading it. Um, you know, uh, one thing, you know, in the little time we have left, I think, um, again, no spirit, uh, uh, the beverage trends of the year was, uh, no spirit, uh-huh. uh, yeah, you know, cocktails being made, not just the old fashioned quote unquote mocktail, but these are very sophisticated cocktails being made. So if you want to really dig in dig in and enjoy the report i think you can find it there but our business is coast to coast we're based in san francisco and we sort of handle media and marketing and social media and pr for restaurants hotels and any anything in the hospitality industry and then we also have a consulting group that does branding concept development uh and consulting for the industry so we're full service we're a one-stop shop so thanks Thanks for letting me plug that. Oh, listen! I mean, I think you've done an absolutely incredible job building this. And, and, and you're and you're business. and you're like Liberty Mutual, like you, you just you just you just buy you just use what you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. need an email. We have a menu of services, if you will, and um, and you can pick and choose from it. And I'm also proud to tell you that. Uh, 2020 will be our 15th anniversary. Oh, that's good. Are we having a party, Andrew? Oh, are we, are, you know, obviously I love to throw a party, so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, okay, so look forward to that. Well, give us enough notice so we can fly <laughs> out there. Yeah. Okay, great. You, you need you need an emu or you need a gecko or something like that. Yeah. I'm yeah. sorry they got rid of the chihuahua. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. By the, by the way, the... The dog featured in the trend report is actually my dog. Oh, you love your dog. I know that. Oh, thank you. Yes. And you, I, you, you sent out your newsletter with um, 
But if, yeah. if people want that newsletter, could they sign up on the um, oh yeah, the website? yeah, you can sign up on the website for our newsletter. It comes out monthly, and, and, and it's uh, so and, fun. It's absolutely he. It's the funniest guy. Yeah, <laughs> you had a second career possibility, a stand up. <laughs> oh yeah, and actually, um, I, on our website right now, there's a podcast that I did with a great guy named Eric from Restaurants Unstoppable. Uh-huh. And uh, it's a great podcast about you know the industry at large, and um, so that's also available on our website right now. Oh, I'll, I'll listen to that because I, I yeah. would really enjoy it. Well, again, it's Andrew Freeman, and uh, look for his website. Get all kinds of information off of there. And uh, again, we'll we'll talk to you if we don't talk to you before then about your trend forecast for next year, twenty twenty one. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. I love our once a once a year date. Yes, <laughs> Andrew. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay. okay. Have a happy holiday. You okay, too. Bye bye. Okay. Next stop after the break is uh, insight into rustic French cooking. So don't go away because we'll be right back. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Our next guest is Audrey Lagoff who started a food blog called Pardon Your French. Uh, She lives in Niagara, Canada, um, but she is from France. And if you want to feel like a lazy bump on the rock, just look at all the other stuff she does. She's a photographer, recipe developer, a consultant for food and drink companies. And, And here's her book, Rustic French. Audrey Lagoff, welcome to On the Menu. Um, your book that we're going to be talking about is Rustic French Cooking Made Easy, but you are um, a creator of a blog called Pardon Your French. <laughs> uh, as I gather from this book, which is subtitled Authentic Regional Flavors from Provence, Brittany, Alsace, and Beyond, it's really about explaining what French cooking really is about, and primarily focusing on the true French cooking found in the homes. Is that correct? Yes, it's absolutely correct. It's a very nice way to describe the book. Great. And now you yourself are French, uh, France-born um, in Brittany, right? Uh, yes, I was born and raised uh, in Brittany. Uh, so on the western northern part of France, uh, on the coast. And I, uh, I moved to Canada in my twenties, so about ten years ago. Okay. But you've traveled extensively in France, and you're trying to point out in this book the, the different, um, styles of cuisine in the different, uh, regions of France, right? Uh, yeah, that's it. So when I was, uh, a child, I was lucky enough to travel a lot. Uh, around France with my family, and um, still today I go back to France uh, at least once a year, and I always visit a new region, and this is something that you can really feel in my cookbook, 
uh, every recipe comes from a different region of France, and uh, there's always always a, a story be- behind each recipe. Most countries in America, you get just like you skim off the top of, the, of that country's cuisine, and then somebody realizes that that's not the true character of the country, and so then they start doing the regional cuisines. Um, this is sort of the way it's done historically. You, though, wanted a, something in particular because you ended up in Canada, um, which you would think would have a lot of, of real French food, and you couldn't find the kinds of food you were raised on. Hmm? Oh, no. Uh, the food in Canada is is very different. Even So I live in Niagara, which is uh, an Anglophone part of Canada, but even if you go in Francophone parts of Canada, such as Quebec, uh, the food is very different from French food from France. What do, you, what do you think are some of the misconceptions that people have, or the average person has, about French food? Um, so uh, I found that there, there are uh, mostly two main misconceptions. Uh, the first one is that uh, people, you know, French cooking is very famous worldwide and people admire French cooking, but they are also very intimidated by French cooking. Uh, I feel French cooking is really seen as a very sophisticated, fancy uh, cooking style. Uh, and I have met a lot of people here in Canada and while traveling who are very intimidated by French cooking, and they they don't think they can recreate those kind of recipes at home. Right. Most, yeah, and mostly, I mean, people's experience with French cuisine is in fancy French restaurants here. That's it. And for me, who I I was born and raised in France, uh, the way I my, I mean, my conception of French cooking is not the French cooking that you're going to find in fancy restaurants. It's the cooking that you're going to find uh, in home kitchens. Right. Um, yeah. And then I would say the second misconception that I feel people have of, about French food is that they only, as you said, they only know the surface. They only know uh, all the Parisian uh, classics and all the regional uh, specialties from France are uh, less known. And I grew up in Brittany, which is, uh, you know, very different from Paris. And the food I, I ate when I was a, a child is very different from all those uh, French classics that people know here outside of France. No, I mean, I think people are more familiar with Lyonnais cooking here, I think. I don't know. Don't you yeah. Think? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, what are some of the foods that you most wanted to bring into focus in, in the true style of, of France? Um, so obviously, as I said already many times, I grew up in Brittany, which is known in France as a region that has a very strong uh, culinary profile. So, But all the specialties from Brittany are less known here outside of France. So I was very passionate about uh, including a lot of recipes from Brittany in my cookbook, but I was also very passionate about showing how, you know, if you go in the south of France, there is a big Mediterranean 
uh, feel in the in the cooking. If you go in the eastern part of France, you can feel the German influences. If you go in the north of France, you can feel the Belgian influences. So I think one of my favorite parts of creating this book was to show all the many influences that you can find in French cooking, and which are very often uh, far away from the idea that people have of French cooking. Right, now, you know, Brittany is probably one of the few places in France I've never been. Oh. <laughs> I always wanted to. You know, I always wanted to, and I like the foods from Brittany. Yeah, think, think butter and cheese. <laughs> Lots of it. That's it. A lot of butter. A lot of butter. <laughs> yeah, Brittany is a beautiful country, uh, a beautiful region, sorry. Um, we don't have major cities, like big cities. It's mostly small towns and villages. But it's a beautiful place, and the food is amazing. But obviously, you you have to like butter. Yeah, I like your sweet olive oil bread. Oh yes, this one is uh, uh, so from the south of France. So yeah. you can see here the difference between uh, in the north and Brittany, in particular. We butter is the base of our cooking, and then if you go in the south of France, olive oil is the base of cooking. Right. Now, what, what about French fries? <laughs> American Sorry? fries. What, 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 French about, fries. what, about, what <laughs> about French fries? Yeah, see, well, I mean, obviously we do have French fries in France, but I wouldn't say they're very traditional or part of our cooking repertoire. Why, why, was, it, why was it that here in America we decided to... It shouldn't be called French fries anymore. It should be called freedom fries. Something something happened between the the U.S. and The French did something to us. I can't remember what it was. I don't remember. Yeah, I can't remember either. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you you do, it seems that the, um, like, when you think about it, Omar al-American, I mean, it, it doesn't seem to me like it's, why did it get named that? This is lobster and with this very heavy sauce. Oh, the the lobster recipe from the book. Yeah. Yes. Um, they call it American sauce, and I never understood that. Cause yeah, the, I think it's the story behind the dish is that, I mean, it was it was made in France, and it, it is a, a French specialty, uh, but it was made one day in a Parisian restaurant for uh, American uh, patrons, Americans who came into the restaurant to enjoy a meal, and the chef, the chef made this uh, recipe for them, and then it, it kind of became the the name of the the dish, I guess. Right. Um, I I like this um, the um, donkey ears. <laughs> it's such a great, colorful name. Yes. Yeah. It's a it's a very funny name. Um, and I, I really like this dish because it's very, uh, I mean, to me, it's like, uh, you know, spinach and uh, bechamel lasagna. It's very, it's pure comfort food. And when people think about French food, they don't necessarily think about comfort food. And this is also why I wanted to include one of those recipes in the book that are just pure comfort food and easy to make. Right. Now, what, do, what about pig's ears? Are, they, are, pig, are pig's ears French? I don't know. <laughs> remember, 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 we had we had pig's ears once. We in, had them in, in, in Seattle. A, well, we had them in a bistro in New York City too. Did 
Did we? No, yeah, there were, there was like snack food on the on there were like bar food. Yeah, here's here's another thing from the south is the salt cod. You would that's because you're close to the Mediterranean when you're doing the brandad de Bordeaux. Yes, um, the this is a really good dish to the salt salt cod uh, brandad, uh, which yeah, it's it, it's hailing from the south of France, but it's actually a very popular dish all through France. Um, and I was in Normandy last year, and I could find it in every bistro. Uh, and I was actually surprised here in Canada uh, to see that you can find salt cod pretty easily uh, in most grocery stores. So I was very excited about it, and obviously I wanted to include this recipe in the book. Yeah, we, my family was Sicilian, so we had we had salt cod up the yin yang. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Um, it, this is, I have a funny story about that uh, uh, Charcut Garni. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> as, as a young bride, I had Julia Child's cookbook, and I decided I would make Charcut Garni. And so yeah. I'm following carefully her, her recipe. I got all these ingredients. I got all this stuff done. And it says, now braise for six hours. <laughs> It was like about seven o'clock at night. <laughs> so, so it tells take, you if you read the recipe all the way through. Yeah, so take a piece of advice from from Miss Anne and don't get in the same position when you're when you're reading the recipes. Make sure you read them all the way to the end. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Now, now, what about boulebes? Boulebes is, I mean, yes. There's, uh, a, there's, the, a, there's a North American version of it as well. Okay. But, but, uh, I didn't know that actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah, bouillabaisse is uh, so the fish stew uh, from Marseille. Um, so I actually, unfortunately, I could not include it in the book. Uh, I had about two hundred recipes that I wanted to include in the book, but I had to make some cuts. Yeah, this and is true of every uh, cookbook author. The, the yeah, always makes you, you, be- you better put it out over the blog, huh? <laughs> yes, and actually, one of the reason why. Um, you, I didn't include the bouillabaisse in this book is because um, I have another fish to recipe in the book, which is called the cotriade, uh, and it is the special a specialty from Brittany. Uh, and those two recipes are, I don't want to say they're similar, but they're quite similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're both fish twos. And so I decided that one was enough for a book. So obviously I decided to cheat. To choose the one from Brittany, uh, but yeah, I I do love bouillabaisse, and it was on my on my original list of recipes, but I had to cut it. The, the, yeah, well, that's sort the, of where we got Chapino from. Yeah, the, too. U, the U.S. version, which is popular in on the West Coast, especially in San Francisco, Chapino. is called Chapino. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's because of the Italian settlers, and yeah, it has more. It has more tomato in it. Right. Yeah, so, um, what was it, the other thing I was going to ask you about? Book, oh, yeah. And the bouillabaisse has more saffron in it. Yeah, um, where, where do you stand since you're living in, in Canada on poutine? <laughs> uh, sorry, can you repeat? Yes, what, what is your stance since you live in Canada on poutine? The last oh, time poutine. I was in Toronto, yeah, the last time I was in Toronto, I thought if I saw one more plate of poutine I was going to die <laughs> yes it's uh, it's 
It's an interesting dish. Yeah, I had it for the first time. My first year in Canada, we went to Montreal for a weekend and I had it. Just because it was my first time in Montreal, so I, I just had to had it to try. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's it's not my favorite dish. Uh, and I feel like it's the kind of meal, if you have it once, it's fine. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah I'm not necessarily craving it right now. <laughs> Um, tell us a little bit about your blog. I mean, how, how when did you start it? Uh, yes. Uh, so my blog, which is called Pardon Your French, uh, I started it uh, three years ago. Um, and I've always been, you know, passionate about French food, and I've always uh, loved taking photos as well. And one day I just put the two together and thought, I'm going to start a food blog about French food. Uh, so I share um, a lot of, you know, classic recipes from France, uh, regional specialties, uh, basically all my favorite recipes, and I always follow the, the season, so you're going to find a lot of seasonal recipes. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's been three years. Uh, it's been great so far, and this is, you know, thanks to this blog that a publishing company uh, contacted me and offered me the chance to write this book. I see. And um, it, has your following increased rapidly lately because there's been a resurgence of interest in French food in, around the country, I know. Uh, yes. Yeah, so this year, I mean, yeah, this year has been great. Uh, you know, I finished working on the book earlier this year and then we started the promotion. And so I... I noticed, you know, a peak of traffic on my blog, uh-huh. uh, and uh, it's it it's. I mean, it's fantastic to see all the people who follow me, who make my recipes, and I've had many people from Canada contacting me about the book, the blog, and I definitely see that there's a, a huge interest in French cooking, and people love the fact that. I'm not a chef. I'm just a home cook, mm-hmm. and this makes the recipes more approachable, I guess. Now, another question is, where do you stand on the uh, the foie gras ban in uh, well, first in uh, California, and now in, it's coming into effect in New York? Yes, uh, it's a uh, it's a very good question. Uh, <sighs> it's, it's a well, tough obviously. One. Yeah, it is a tough one, uh, especially in, in, you know, as a French person, it's it's a kind of a question that you ask yourself every year when the the holidays are coming. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I have to be honest, I do love foie gras, uh-huh. and I've had foie gras since I was a kid, yeah. every year for Christmas, and to me, it wouldn't be Christmas without foie gras. Uh-huh. And for more for most French people, I think they feel the same. But obviously, it, there is uh, it's a bit controversial, and uh, I feel like I'm not 100% comfortable with the idea of eating foie gras. But still, I have to be honest, it wouldn't be the holidays without, without foie gras for me. Yeah, well, I honestly, I think that I would say making rules about what you can eat and can't eat is uh, it's not a slippery slope because... Yeah, um, basically, you could say, look at how mistreated uh, 
chickens are, you know, and you can't have chicken. I mean, I kind of understand the Ortolan thing. I mean, that was, I just seeing pictures of the people with the things over their heads eating these little birds was a bit much. But, um, but once you start outlawing things, I don't know where you start, uh, stop rather. Yes. No, I agree. I agree with you. It is a, a slippery. It, it's yeah. It's it's a tough one. It's a tough subject, and uh, it's if you start batting something, then you're just opening a can of worms. I feel. Yeah, I think so too. I think there should be a place where you stop legislating where maybe, what everybody's going to do. Maybe, maybe maybe we should eat worms instead of flagger. Yeah, they like you to eat grasshoppers. <laughs> then they'll find out they'll like they'll find out that grasshoppers have some sort of brilliant um, a nervous system and are sensitive <laughs> to deep frying. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, Audrey, we we digress, but um this again is Audrey Legoff. Uh, rustic French cooking made easy, and the restaurants, uh, the recipes are actually uh, easy to follow and very clearly written. And uh, those who would like to know more about it should uh, check out Audrey's blog. Is uh, pardon your French. Thank you yeah. very much, Audrey, and, and enjoy uh, the, the nice weather in Canada. <laughs> oh, thank you. We're already <laughs> under the snow here. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. And now for wrapping up the program, um, you, you've heard from uh, Tia before because she had this wonderful book on um, on uh, the art of the cheese plate. She, she knows a lot about cheese. Tia Keenan, Keenan is going to be talking to us about goat cheeses of France and kind of how you serve it. Uh, on the menu always likes to have such good guests that they're com- they come back, repeat guests we have. And we have another one today, Tia Keenan. Um, you may recall her book, The Art of the Cheese Plate, which was so gorgeous. I was sorry, we're not on the television. Um, we're going to be discussing uh, one of her specialties today called Goat Cheeses of France. Now, Tia, is that a... Um, an organization? Yeah, so Goat Cheeses of France is um, essentially a trade organization which promotes uh, goat cheese and goat cheese makers uh, in France. Okay. And um, Peter was trying to remember, geographically, can you locate where the most goat cheese comes from in France? Yeah, so um, goat cheese is made all over France, but the Loire Valley That's is considered the um, cradle of French goat cheese. 
and we're looking at central um, western France. But isn't it true that it's goat cheese is mostly in the south, and no other milks are made into cheese in in the in the southern part of France. There, there is a little bit, but but this is the traditional. You know, if you think about the terrain of the southern part of France, right. we're looking at very goat friendly terrain, right? So, right. so cows would need lots of pasture and space, and and goats prefer a more sort of craggy. Um, varied landscape. They're, they're wonderful animals, um, for, uh, foraging and, and eating off of all different kinds of landscapes. They're not pasture animals. We, we've had so many interesting interviews with, uh, goat cheese, goat farmers and goat cheese makers, mm-hmm. uh, in, including, uh, what's her name? Uh, Mary Keen, Mary Keen. Oh, her, yeah, yeah. Mary Keen, yeah. Mary Keen. And then, uh, yeah, the, from Cypress Grove, yeah. Right. Cypress Grove, yeah. And, and then it was, um, uh, Ann, Ann Miller? No. She's, mm-hmm. she's the one who's from, she's, she's the one from Vermont? No. no. I think okay. New York, I don't know. Okay. Her book is a riot. She talks about the characters of these goats. And they're very funny. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting that you mention American goat cheese makers because I think that generation, especially, especially like Mary Keene's generation, which were really the first generation of um, sort of American artisanal goat cheese making, um, they really, um, they started making cheese in part because they had um, individually um, in the 70s sort of been inspired by French goat cheeses. So I know um, Allison from Vermont Creamery has spoken frequently about going to France as a young woman and discovering all of these goat cheeses and, you know, being immersed in this French goat cheese culture and thinking, you know, why can't we... Why? Why don't we have this? <laughs> why can't right. we make this? Yeah, it's smaller. Um, I mean, it's easier uh, to manage. It's well, big cow. I, I asked Mary King one, one day. I said, "Why did you get into goat cheese business?" And she said, mm. "I was a single mother with three children." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I had to do something. Yeah. My favorite, I can't remember who it was, the, the guy who wanted to start making uh, goat cheese, and he bought two goats because he couldn't afford any more and the goats turned out to be gay and they wouldn't they wouldn't breed <laughs> and he said they don't got any milk <laughs> oh that's pretty funny yeah, funny. yeah I guess he gay goats a, are a not newbie. a good recipe for cheese <laughs> it's, interesting, it's interesting my, my cousin Richard has a small farm just outside Devonport in Tasmania, Australia, and, and he had two goats, and they used to they helped him to get keep the weeds down. But he said, "I asked, yeah. I asked the vet one day how how, how long what's the life expectancy of a goat?" <laughs> and the, the vet said, "As long as their teeth hold out forever." <laughs> Because they chew everything. Because <laughs> they chew everything. But if, if they can't chew anymore, yeah. they don't know any other way to eat, so they die. Okay, so uh-huh. you know, what, what should we know about particulars of, of goat cheese from France? And then we'll talk about the samples you sent and how you paired them up or what you should do pairing them up. 
Yeah, so I think, um, you know, what's important to understand about French goat cheese is, um, first, that it's really the birthplace of the what we associate with goat cheeses. So fresh goat cheeses, um, uh, bloomy rind, ash rind goat cheeses, and all these wonderful shapes and pucks. Um, we're talking about milk quality, so the milking herd, the goat milking herd um, throughout France is an incredible, um, produces an incredible quality of milk that in part is a result of generations of um, knowledgeable and refining of the goat um, heritage. So something, you know, we get wonderful milk from goats, um, not just because of luck, but also because of knowledge and breeding, um, and also knowledge that's applied intergenerationally to their diet. So farmers in France have been honing their knowledge around breeding and um, the diet and care of their goats to produce such a high-quality milk. Um, So we know that we're... When we're eating French goat cheeses, we're eating um, uh, a history and a tradition um, that has resulted in a in a level of quality that's really unprecedented around the world. It's we know really that we're experiencing clean, bright flavors with really wonderful terroir and minerality, um, and we know also that we're benefiting from decades um, of affinage as well. So affinage is, is what happens after the cheese is made. It's the care and the aging of cheese. So when we're talking about French goat cheese, we're, we're not just talking, we're talking about the quality of the milk and the craftsmanship of the cheese making, and then we're also talking about the care of the cheese as it ages. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, French goat cheeses really are sort of at the apex of um, what that production line can be. Well, how did they differ one to the well, other? Well, there are various different styles. I mean, would you call it styles? Or? Yeah, well, there's going to be, I mean, the terroir is, um, you know, there's going to be variation in terroir from village to village, town to town, region to region. Um, and then there's, of course, going to be variation in the recipes that the cheesemakers use to make the cheese. Okay. And then there's going to be variation in the techniques that the Athenors use to age it. So, so, so you know, there's sort of a joke in the cheesemaking community that the recipe for cheese is milk, rennet, and salt, right? It's right. a very simple re- recipe, but out of that recipe, we can have literally thousands of cheeses. Because every, you know, all the milk is different, all the the techniques of making it can be different, and then all the ways we age it can be different. So out of this one very simple sort of master recipe, we can we can have thousands of cheeses. Now, you said three, are they distinct types, we call them? Um, I'm not sure. Can you remind me what, what you received for the samples? We sent us an ash-covered cheese. Okay, it's shaped like a pyramid. And it was a little bit like a pyramid, and it was called yeah, so Valenciennes with ash. Correct. And then and with, with the style pyramid. Then you sent us yes. a, a boucheron de maxi log goat milk. Yep. And then a pico. 
Yeah, Kim Spiegel. Spiegel. Yeah, like, so like, those okay. are three. Those are three really different styles. The Valencia is definitely the younger of the three cheeses. Um, it's it's uh, an ash rind cheese. It um, the ash is it's. Um, used quite frequently in goat cheese making because goat's milk is very acidic and the ash which is made Neutral, from vegetables yeah. um, helps uh, create helps achieve the pH balance um, okay. and so the tradition for ash ash did a couple of things in traditional cheese making first it prote- protected the um, the outside of the cheese from from bugs, from flies, you know, from yeah. from um, environmental um, Pathogens, contamination. Yeah. And then it also helped balance the um, the pH of the cheese. And then also, of course, it's very beautiful, right? Because we oh, have with goat cheese, yeah. the taste is very white and bright white. And then you have the lovely black and, and gray ash, and it just creates a very... You know, visually striking. And what? Thing. And so that's so, so striking. What do you pull on the plate with it, <laughs> or the board? I mean, there's there's plenty of pairings for a valance. I like to keep a pairing with a valance very light. The cheese itself is sort of you know more moist and fluffy and and sort of gentle. So I like to keep it very simple and light. Maybe some fresh fruits or some honey. I don't want to go too heavy on the pairings. Even if I'm going to pick a jam or a confit, I want that to be a very light flavor. You know, something 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 like lemony or something. You know, a berry, a a, a bright berry. I wouldn't want to go. You know, with dark chutneys or even a dark honey on a balance. I want to keep it very light because balance is a very sort of light. Um, fresh tasting cheese. Mm-hmm. And then the next one you have is. It wouldn't go with the Davina fig spread. <laughs> no, I mean, you could, because let's be real, a delicious cheese is it's going to go with a lot of different things. But for me, I would rather take that fig spread and, and apply it to something like the Boucheron Dean, which is a little bit more aged. It's a little denser. It has a little less moisture. It's a little sort of heartier and nuttier. Um, to me, Valencia is a more like sort of citrusy, grassy cheese, and Bouchon Dean starts to move into the more like savory, honeyed, and nutty type of cheese. Mm-hmm. And I think for something like that, figs would work well because you have figs have a certain weight to them, right? Um, and and just in terms of their um, the depth of their flavor, right? It's a very sort of yeah. deep, dark flavor. Um, and I think a more aged cheese like Boucherandine is, is a better pairing for that. And then your third cheese was Pico, which is a very unique um, goat cheese because it's a, it's washed. Um, wash and that's, yeah, it's a wash rind. And that's certainly one of the lesser, um, you know, lesser common um, styles of cheese made, made with goat's milk. It's funny. It's funny. I saw some, I saw Pico at my local Whole food store just the other day. Mm-hmm. So, you, so you've got yeah, some, it's wonderful. You've got some penetration. The thing I liked about it is it's soft. So it's so it's like yes, it's, it's very like, soft. It's like brie with a difference, if you like, or camembert with a difference. It doesn't have that sticky yeah. quality that brie has. Kind no, of. no, I mean it's sim- similar in, in density and s- 
style in your mouth tastes different, but but it has the same sensation because uh, because it's what, what's the word I'm looking for? It's creamy. Yeah, it's very creamy. Yes. Whereas the the ash coated cheeses are kind of grainy. Yeah, I mean definitely okay. for yeah, the younger yeah. cheeses. Yeah. Um, and and pico is washed, but then also has nice sort of bloomy rind development. So it's this nice kind of hybrid because on the one hand, it, it's got a little bit of that salinity and like saltiness from being from being washed, and a little bit of that funk. But then it's also got this beautiful, like gentle rind development, which is why it would remind you of something like a brie. So it's sort of a, a very fine mix that cheese really it's, lovely it's very, it's very beneath just between beneath the surface it's a lot like humble fog yeah right. mm. it develops in a creaminess that's very it's very very delightful once you keep it out of the refrigerator for a long time yes and, and all cheeses I will say all cheeses do do well to be served at room temperature now, what what is the uh, the status of like um, you know the I just read an article but the EU gets involved with all these products and the, the court just announced that um, on appeal that um, with Balsamico um, the Modena does not have the exclusive right to determine the. Um, what would be DOP or whatever on Balsamico they can apply to any number of um, geographical locations I mean, what about the, the same kind of applications in, in French goat cheeses well hmm, that's a very technical question and I feel like I can't answer specifically um, to how the EU is um, relating to individual country member countries mm-hmm. and in the regulation of those member countries' agricultural products, but I can say that um, you know one of the reasons that we have such incredible traditional foods from France is because France decided well before um, other places that to put value and to. Um, respect the traditions of their agricultural products and they've been protecting those agricultural products um, not just in the marketplace but also within those regions to protect the integrity and quality of those project, um, products yeah, for well over 100 years. Yeah, champagne's yeah, a good example. If, <laughs> if they hadn't had the foresight to say this is culturally valuable to us, not just commercially valuable, but also culturally valuable, and this is something that's worth protecting. If they hadn't had the foresight to do that well before Farm to Table, well oh, yeah. before Americans discovered any of that, then then we would have lost a whole, you know, really important um, cultural heritage, European cultural heritage and French cultural her- heritage. And the French have been, I'm going to use very intentionally the word militant. The French okay. have been very so, yeah. militant 
in protecting um, the thousands of years of tradition that they have in producing things like goat cheese in wine and apply other that, products. Apply that concept to the goat cheese. Is there an iconic designation for goat cheese? Yeah, I mean, I think more... I mean, obviously, the Loire is going to be the cradle of goat cheese production, and in some ways, it's the cradle of goat cheese production for the world, because when other people in other parts of the world want to produce goat cheese, they know that they have to pilgrimage to the Loire, right? They know that, that the farmers in the Loire and the the breeding stock in Loire is the most sophisticated knowledge center in the world. Um so, so we have to the, Loire, the goat stock too, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the goats are bred to um, to produce uh, the best quality of milk, hmm. um, and that's that's really important. We don't often think of cheese as a breeding product, but it, it is absolutely. <laughs> oh, sure. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you know, but I think like the fact. The quality of milk. The fact that I work with goat cheeses of France is a good example of how the French continually invest in the um, in the in goat cheese as an invaluable agricultural and cultural product. Um, no, I'm, that I'm, they have people all over the world who they work with to talk about their cheese and educate people about their cheese and share their cheese um, with other people um, shows you sort of the importance that they put on that product in their economy and in their culture. Yeah, I, I, I think of when I think of French cheeses that have succeeded in maintaining their identity and their quality. The first one that springs to mind, I guess, is Roquefort. Yeah. And, and the, the, the Roquefort guys have been, have been extremely successful in saying, this this is Roquefort and there's no other cheese in the world quite like it. Except the ones that... Yeah, well, also, I, I, <laughs> I think, you know, we especially feel that in the United States because early on in the 19... 19- post-war, when we started importing European cheese, or when European cheeses were being exported to the United States in the post-war economy, um, Roquefort was one of those first early cheeses, so I think also it's a, it's a, um, it's a testament to launch the longevity and also to the wonderful marketing and the message and also just the quality of the, that cheese that um, that you associate it with that because Roquefort was definitely one of the earliest European cheeses to be consistently um, story? exported to the United States and and yeah. marketed to the United States. No, I was going to that. I was like, <laughs> yeah. No, we're, we're, we're not going to mention names. I mean, there's somebody who smuggled the uh, mold out of <laughs> the caves. Yeah. And you, you imported it into, into the United States. I don't know how they got away with it. We won't, we won't tell you who it is. <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember. Yeah, what I, I can, I'm sure I can. Figure out. I may, I may hold a couple of cheese secrets myself. There you go. <laughs> now, now the, the, sto- the story goes that uh, General de Gaulle, when he was uh, 
president of the third republic or the fourth republic or the fifth republic uh, lamented one day to, to a, a leader of another country which one really doesn't matter he said how do you govern a country that has 400 kinds of cheese <laughs> and then the funny part about it is I think he was probably underestimating by, oh, a, yes, fact, by, a, by a factor of about 10 so yeah and at least you can see these little goats Peter keeps searching for the buffaloes for a buffalo mozzarella <laughs> <laughs> and they keep hiding <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah. well um Give me a good ghost cheese any day. I mean, I'm up for it. <laughs> oh, I, I know what I want. I know what I wanted to ask. Is are there blue versions of goat cheese? I think so, but I I'm think not so. Sure. Yeah, they are. There are. There, there. Certainly, less of them made than other styles, um, but they often are characteristic. Still holds some of the char- the characteristics that all goat cheeses are known for. So wonderful minerality, um, uh, you know that that brightness. I mean, when I'm thinking about goat cheese in general, I'm just thinking about um, a freshness, a brightness. Even in the aged cheeses, even in the age, even in the goat cheeses that are aged, um, you know, there's just there's just a brightness to goat cheese um, that. I think is what's so appealing about it and also why it's so wonderful for cooking. Um, I wrote a whole book, I I wrote a whole cookbook about Chev, um, which was part of the Short Stack series. I don't know if you're familiar with those series. Yeah, so they're single, single ingredients, um, or single ingredient focused cookbooks and mine was about Chev. And I said that Chev Chev is like the lemon juice of the cheese world. You know, you really use it to punctuate and um, accentuate, and it's why it's such a wonderful ingredient, not just in salads, but also in gratins and all kinds of um, all kinds of foods because it's just got a wonderful, distinct um, brightness to it. That's really lovely. Uh, do, you, do you have a website where people can get more information about the different kinds of cheese and perhaps a place where they can be directed to get some yeah so I have my own personal website um, but you can go to I'm just double checking right now because I would hate to be on your podcast and give the wrong URL and I'm known it's goatcheesesoffrance.com and I just want to make sure that it wasn't the goat cheeses, or it's it's goatcheesesoffrance.com. Okay. And like there they have wonderful recipes, um, tips about cooking with chefs, um, a long list of cheeses and that describes their different characteristics, their varieties, their textures, their shape, their origins. Um, they have a wonderful um, sort of tutorial on how um, Chev is made on the different flavors of Chev. Um, uh, what it, what happens as Chev ages? It's a really it's a really wonderful, useful website for people who are curious about goat cheese, but also for people who know about goat cheese but want want to learn a little bit more and dig a little bit deeper. Well, Good information. Well, yeah, thank you so much yeah. for, for joining us. I'll pray that we don't have any more tariffs on. Uh, Products of yes, I know. <laughs> and, and we, I'm we, happy we, to pray for that. And we can we can sneak in a Viva France, can we? 
Great. Thank you so much, Tia Keenan. And, oh, thank you so much. It was really nice part. speaking with you again. It, yes. And your next book, let me know. Okay. Well, absolutely. Thank you. Sorry for that ugly soundtrack on the last interview. It was a conference call that they set up, not me. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, okay. so I can say that. Anyhow, you know, I wanted to say one more thing before go, go we ahead. go, is that um, if anybody wants to knock your socks off um, cheese-related present, uh, check out the uh, Wusthof cheese knife set. I mean, it is gorgeous. <laughs> and just a mere $400 between friends. Yes. So you, sh- you should definitely get one for the one you love, especially if the one you love loves cheese. And that, that's enough philosophy for this week. We'll see you again, same time, same place, next week. And until then, bye-bye.